Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones their hearts and understand that I will love them. I will love them while I still can. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I hope it is a wonderful day in your neighborhood. I'm up here in Minnesota, and the weather is absolutely gorgeous. We're getting ready for some rain, but until then, it is blue skies and a nice light breeze, and I'm a happy camper. So hopefully your life is uh, treating you well this Tuesday, the first day of October. I can't believe we're here already, and Halloween will be right around the corner. I'm the uh, host and founder, Lori LeBay, and before I get started with the program, since we always get new listeners, I just like to let people know a little bit about um, Alzheimer's Speaks, how it came about, and and what it is we do, and, and how we can help you, and um, how we can all work together and be a collaborative team when it comes to this disease called dementia. Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company, and we provide multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And our goal is to connect people with products, services, and tools um, that will help them and also allows them to pass them on to others that they know. We believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having everyday conversations about life with dementia, we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease live with purpose and um, have happy lives along with those who are caring for them. Together, I really believe that we can get others to understand what the true needs of this disease are and in that process remove the myths and the stigmas that create so much fear and isolation. People just should not have to live their lives like that. So at our core, again, we believe that collaboratively we can win this battle against dementia. And we're making great progress. And I have to thank all of you. Um, many times people don't realize the power of social media. And this platform is just one mode along with Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Pinterest and the zillion others that are out there. But your clicks are extremely powerful. And so I would like to ask you to please like us on Facebook. Um, share the link to the show with your audience, with your circle of friends, with your sphere of influence on LinkedIn. You never know who needs this information. This is such a hidden disease. And so many times people won't talk about it unless something triggers a conversation. So be the trigger. It just takes you a second to go ahead and 
um, like us and share that information. And again, not just Alzheimer's Speaks, but whenever you see this information, um, please share it. Um, I think you'll be amazed at the number of people you can help. I know I've been flabbergasted because we were honored um, last, it was actually last year, about this time in November, um, ShareCare and Dr. Oz um, recognized Alzheimer's Speaks as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's disease. And that has to do with you. That has to do with this collaborative effort of sharing information Information. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart because together we are really making a big, big difference. I also want people to know that on this platform here with the radio show, you can easily participate in the conversation either through using the chat box or you can call in live and ask your question or pose a comment. And the number to call in live is 714 714- Three six four four seven five seven. Again, that's seven one four three six four four seven five seven. And we'd love to hear from everybody, uh, from those living with the disease, for those caring for somebody with the disease, for those with a product, tool, or service that can help somebody. Um, Again, you'll just have to push one to go ahead and get into our queue. And um, from there, I'll know that that you want to have a comment or a question, and I'll pull you into the conversation as soon as there is a break. what else do I want to tell you before uh, before we get rolling with the show? Oh, I know I should always mention a few associations. People are always looking for help and support groups. And one of the best places that you can go is the Alzheimer's Disease International um, website because they are the association of all Alzheimer's associations around the world. So you can Google Alzheimer's Disease International, known as ADI, or go to www.alz.co.uk, and uh, there you'll get lots of great information. People are always looking for trial information, and the Alzheimer's Studies has a patient trial out right now on um, regarding tau, and you can find them at alzheimersstudies.com or go to the Alzheimer's team if you're on Facebook to find out more information about them. The Louis Body Association um, also can be extremely helpful because it is its own disease, as is the frontal temporal lobe, who we are going to feature a little later on in the show. So for the Louis Body Association, you can go to LBDA, that's Louis Body Dementia Association dot org. And I'd be amiss if I didn't mention the Purple Angel Project, which is headed up by Norm Smack, the mirror over in the UK and is the new global symbol. I should say the only global symbol and hopefully remains the only global symbol for dementia. You can um, participate in that as well in terms of raising awareness. And we're going to have uh, Michael Ellenbogen on with us who can who can speak to that a little bit more. So I am going to go ahead and um, pull Michael into the conversation here and um, because he has a few things 
uh, to tell us. So, Michael, how are you doing today? Good, Lori. How are you? Wonderful. I am doing very, very good. Now, I'm excited to talk to you because, if I'm not mistaken, you were just out at Harvard University. Is that correct? Yes, I was. Uh, I had uh, been invited to speak at the, uh, I guess, uh, college there. Uh, I was uh, invited to speak for the Alzheimer's Buddies, uh, and uh, it was uh, really a pleasure to meet uh, all those uh, great uh, students there who are doing uh, such wonderful things uh, out there um, Great. I was able to meet a couple of them when I was out in New York um, with the Jiminy Wicket program for croquet, and I was just so impressed with the Alzheimer's Buddies. Can you tell people a little bit about what the Alzheimer's Buddies actually are and what they do? Sure. Uh, First of all, uh, this particular program, I want to give credit to the person who actually created this, was uh, Ryan Creast. Uh, He actually had this vision uh, a couple years ago, and uh, he was the uh, person who uh, started this program. But basically what the program does is uh, they have a bunch of students who volunteer their time, and uh, they meet at a home where there are other people living with the disease, uh, patients, uh, and they meet there on a weekly basis, and uh, these people are in either in intermediate to late stages of Alzheimer's disease or some sort of dementia. And uh, they spend time with them, and uh, by doing this, it makes their lives so much better. Uh, At the end of the program, they write some kind of, I guess, write-up that they share with the families of what they've learned from that particular patient that uh, each buddy is, uh, I guess, together for that whole duration, for that whole semester. Uh, the whole year that they're with, and uh, they write, and many times they end up uh, explaining things that they've learned about that particular patient that the family wasn't even aware of, that they were able to understand and share with them. And uh, a lot of the times, you know, these people end up having smiles on their faces, and uh, they start coming out of their shells a little bit. And uh, it's really such a wonderful program. I, I really believe that this should become a model around the U.S. and other places uh, because it's a a great way not only for them to interact and to understand firsthand what it's like. You know, a lot of these these, uh, students are uh, in the field of neurology and uh, they're learning themselves. So it's really a great engagement where they get to understand firsthand what it's like to be, you know, close with these people and to understand how these people actually uh, I guess work by being able to communicate with them and they understand that by being patient with them, they can get some communications back from them. So it, it's just a, such a wonderful program. I can't say enough about it. Yeah, I've read some articles and from what the the students have said, it was, it's just amazing at how much it has shifted their perspective of what this disease is um, and what it can be, because I think most people, you know, hear about it, they automatically think end stages, and they don't think about this life in the middle, you know, and right. the beginning of this disease, which is extremely powerful. I mean, I, I look at you and Norms and Harry and Rick and Steve and, and Dina and so many others, Richard Taylor, 
And the powerful things that you are doing by communicating with us all in terms of what life is like with this disease. I have learned so much from all of you. And I just, again, I think the, the um, uh, Alzheimer's Body Project, you know, at Harvard is just an incredible, incredible piece. And it would be wonderful it was a, if it was adopted in all colleges. Um Tied into that, I think, with the Jiminy Wicket program in the younger years for junior high and high school with playing croquet and getting that education, I think, would be phenomenal as well because there's so much fear in our generation about this disease. If we can get rid of that in the younger generations, I think that will help us make a lot of progress um, throughout now you you actually spoke to that group. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about what you talked about? And well, uh, to tell you the truth, I don't remember the speech at this point. What I did, but uh, I have to tell you, uh, the symposium was really great, and I, I was just one of many speakers there. Uh, actually, uh, the person who was. Uh, uh, hosting it uh, was uh, Meredith Vieira, uh, who I'm sure you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, this was actually sponsored by, I guess, uh, Hebrew Senior Life. Okay. And uh, uh, it, it was just really great. I mean, there were so many speakers. In fact, uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, James Creasy. He was actually one of the speakers there, uh, and he had the opportunity to actually teach me a little bit about how to play croquet, which was very interesting, and uh, it's uh something that I hope that uh, ends up uh, eventually happening here in uh, the Philadelphia area because uh, I think it's something that is also great, a nice alternative therapy. Yeah, wonderful. Um, the Now, you have been to Harvard. You went to Harvard last year, too, didn't you? Yes, unfortunately, uh, I went there last year uh, that we were going to do the same program that was just done now, and uh, it happened to be bad timing when we had that uh those uh terrorist and uh bombing there and uh Harvard was completely shut down and uh, I think I was the only person walking on the streets that day. Uh so it, it was finally great that uh they were finally able to pull this thing off and uh I, I think it was very successful and uh hopefully this is the beginning of uh having this thing annually. In fact that you know it was such an honor just to be invited to be able to speak at Harvard but was even more interesting, the place that uh, I happened to be speaking at, they held this at the, uh, it was the first parish church meeting house. And this is one of the first churches, believe it or not, in the U.S. It was actually built in 1632. Uh, and from my understanding, it was actually there before, uh, I guess, uh, Harvard. So it's kind of interesting the history behind this place. Wow, that that is well, you know, Harvard. They just uh, they make a lot of uh, a, a lot of progress in that town, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's it's a great great thing to to be part of that. I w- I would love to personally be able to go out there and talk with them as well one of these years to be invited out. I, I just think it's such an honor, and I think it was great. I, I remember you being out there last year 
you know, with the 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 uh, Boston Marathon um, bombing and thinking, gosh, how are how are you doing and how are you even maneuvering around through you know through all of that? Um, I mean, it's, it would be hard enough for any of us, but then add dementia onto it. And so I was just so impressed um, and continue to be with all all that you do all the time. So I really want to thank you for your efforts. Um, Michael, I'm wondering if by chance if you could talk a little bit about your new book, From the Corner Office to Alzheimer's. Well, yes, Lori, uh, sure. Uh, basically, I guess uh, about four weeks ago, I finally uh, released the uh, version of it uh, that's available online, and uh, you could either get it through Kindle at this point or PC download. Uh, I am working on a version that's going to be a hard copy, which will probably be out in about three months. But the book is called From the Corner Office to Alzheimer's, and it's based on my experiences dealing with this particular disease uh, starting at the age of 39. And it goes into, I guess what I was trying to convey when I wrote this book was that you can't give up, uh, which, you know, I kind of did at the very beginning uh, when I was first uh, trying to get a diagnosis with this disease. Uh, it actually took me 10 years. But through this book, I gave a lot of very specific testings that were done that people can kind of identify with what they might be going through, which might be helpful to them. Uh, again, it's not... Uh, going to be exactly the same as everybody's going through, but it will be helpful to identify what kind of testing one should go through and things like that. Uh, so I think it would be helpful from that perspective. But plus, because of all the issues I ran into, I realized that I was kind of blinded and not knowing what I should do from a medical perspective of what testings were available. So I had a doctor also write a chapter that kind of gave a good uh, – I guess, scenario of what test one who is living with this disease or has some kind of dementia, what test they should take. And also I had a chapter written by a lawyer who also gave suggestions if you have to apply for Social Security or you're considering to, what, at what point in time you might need a lawyer or what avenues one should take, uh, which was a real good resource, which I, to be honest, I wish I would have had uh, before I went down that road. So that was kind of the intent of uh, putting the book together. Uh, and again, uh, keep in mind that book was probably about two and a half years old now. Uh, so it does not include everything, you know, with the way I am today. I was actually hoping to continue writing it, but unfortunately my writing skills has deteriorated to the point that I could no longer do that. So I had to kind of give up to uh, continue going forward. Well, I'm glad you continued to go forward because, um, again, your book and your voice is, is very important for people to be able to to hear. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, if people go to, do they go to Amazon or do they go to your website to get the book? Well, they can go to Amazon. Uh, Amazon will have my book there. Uh, they can also go to my website, uh, which is uh, michaelellenbogenmovement.com. And through that, there's also a click on there, I think, on the very first page uh, that they can go to. And, uh, uh, you know, people can always reach out to me also if they want to get more information through my website. There's a way that they connect to me, uh, and I'd be more than happy to uh, speak with them. 
Okay, wonderful. What what types of um, information do you share? Do you have question? Uh, you know, do you answer questions or do you kind of talk about the progression? Can you give us a little insight as to the book? Sure, I talk a lot about the different issues that I actually ran into. Uh, I, I'll tell you, one of the things that I realized early on. You know, I, I went to my first doctor's appointment, and I said, you know, I got all these different problems. And the doctor says, well, what's your problems? So when the doctor asked me this, of course, you know, having problems with memory, I could only come up with a couple examples. And the mm-hmm. doctor says, well, that's normal. You know, we all have them. And I'm, think- and I'm thinking to myself, well, I got so many more, but I can't think of them. And I couldn't come up with the any uh, ideas. So because of that... I realized that I needed to do a better job the next time I went to see my doctor. So I started creating a list of all the different difficulties I was having at the time. So I started this long-running list, and it it took me probably about three months of information of how frequently things were happening to me and the issues that were happening to me, and I started putting them on writing. And I finally shared them with my doctors when I finally went to the doctors. So that's what really benefited me to finally get the word out to the doctors and explain. So people will be able to see all the different issues I was running into. And I've now shared this with, my God, I can't even begin to tell you how many people who are living with the disease, probably at least 100 if not more, and uh, caregivers and so on, and they've all come back and told me, at least the people who are living with the disease, they said, wow, this is almost like me. You're describing me. And the caregivers have come back and told me, because, wow, thank you so much for sharing this. Now I understand what, you know, my uh, loved one was dealing with, you know, because many of them were never capable of sharing what I've been able to put together there. So that's been some of the benefits that I've heard, you know, from other people who have uh, seen it so far. Well, that's that's amazing. Um, you know, it is such a gift, and I know it takes a lot of work, um, but it is not, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to be brave enough to post and uh, to be able to show um, and tell what it's really like. Um, you know, storytelling's not not easy, and not that this is a, a story, but it has to be engaging for people to want to want to see, and um, not an easy thing to do. Um, did you? How long had you started kind of writing before you actually decided to put it into a book? Well, actually, it was kind of easy for me just because of my dementia issues. I had to keep everything in some kind of writing uh, for myself. So I was kind of actually lucky because I had all these notes all over the place. You know, every time I went to a doctor, I kept these notes and this notes. So I was able to kind of pull them all together and just piece it all together and do the writing. It probably took me overall, I guess probably I'd say about six months to eight months to write it. But the hard part was really getting the doctors and the lawyers to to put the book together together. That piece took me almost two years from the time I was done. So the overall time took almost three years to get this book done. Uh, and, and the biggest problem is I had written a book before, and that book, I was, believe it or not, I was able to get the whole book done in six months. I was able to get the whole book done completely. I did the whole entire book 
and that was a hardback. Well, this mm-hmm. book I could no longer do. I, this book I could no longer do and get get it done on my own because I had to rely on people. So I'm still having difficulty trying to get the hard copy version put out because I need to rely on others to help me do that. I can no longer do that. I can no longer put it out on Amazon. I, I don't have those skills any longer to be able to do that, which is kind of sad because I now have to rely on other people to help me do all these different things that I was once capable of doing on my own and very good. In fact, much better than the people, unfortunately, I'm relying on, but I have no choice. Yeah, and it, it's hard. I mean, I'm working on two books myself, and it's, you know, it's a project. It's 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 a project and a half, um, you know, to get done and then to get tweaked and to make sure that it flows and that everything has a beginning, middle, and end. And the editing, I mean, we're not even to that point. We're just kind of doing storyline right now with um, one small book and then, the larger book, um, you know, is you know will take will take much more time. This this one we're working on right now is a a book for adults to share with children. And um, but it's amazing um, the the hours that go into this stuff. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal. And I don't, I mean, I always you know I always like to read, but I I never realized I never thought about the work. <laughs> behind those books and I have a whole other appreciation for that now um definitely um have you um have you gotten uh much response from uh you know any particular doctors at all or um maybe even communities that have read your book well I I've looked at online and I've seen some of the uh, write-ups you know that people have put out there uh, in fact, uh, th- this past week when I was at the uh, uh, program where they had the uh, Buddies program, Harvard Buddies, uh, they actually told me that they're actually going to be recommending that book to all their Harvard Buddies who are going to be taking the program. Uh, so this is actually going to be a recommended book, it sounds like, at Harvard. Uh, wow. I- I'm kind of shocked. You know, he- he- here I am, uh, what I kind of consider myself kind of a nobody and here they're going to be reading my book at Harvard, you know. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, so that that kind of tells you a little bit about, you know, what other people think about the book. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, I don't think. No, no, that that's a, that's a pretty big kudos. That's for sure. Um, absolutely unbelievable um, in terms of uh, credibility there. But you know, it just shows that you really have. Um, good insight and you know you're you're on you're so honest michael in terms of what you see and feel and how you how you process things now um it it is really very very helpful so i would definitely encourage people to you know um check out the book again it's from the corner office to alzheimer's and you know, Michael, for those of you that don't know, had a pretty powerful position at one time. And so this is a big adjustment. And, you know, this disease doesn't discriminate who it's going to come and get. And um, when I look at what Michael is able to do with this disease, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Purple Angel Project as well? We're still having trouble with our first guest uh, calling in, um, but hopefully we'll get Hugo on the line yet. We're still trying to maneuver in the backgrounds here. Good old Skype at its finest. (laughs) 
But do you want to talk a little bit about the Purple Angel Project? Because I know you're a huge advocate for that and trying to break down the silos. So that would be great. Sure, Lori. Basically, the Purple Angel Project was started by Norm McNamara and uh, I think Jane Moore, I think her name is. Uh, Basically, it's a person who is living with the disease and also a caregiver. Uh, It doesn't get any more ground roots uh, than that. Uh, And uh, it started out in the U.K. where they were just trying to make awareness out there. And uh, slowly, I started seeing this particular symbol becoming, I guess, spreading on its own without anybody really pushing it. You know, I started seeing it on this website, people's Facebook pages. And at the same time, I knew there was about six or five different logos out there trying to represent some form of dementia. And, uh, you know, they were all built by the various different silos out there or organizations. And... It was very confusing for people to realize what really stood for Alzheimer's or dementia, for that matter. And you know, I know you know when you think of the pink ribbon. My God, everybody knows what the pink ribbon stands for. And I yep. said, why doesn't people know that for dementia or Alzheimer's? You know, you ask people, they they they're clueless. They really don't know. You mm-hmm. know, all they all they do know is that it is associated with purple. So I said, you know, in order to really make awareness out there, what we have to do is embrace one common logo. And yep. we all have to sing the same tune, whether it's frontal lobe, Lewy body, vascular dementia. It doesn't matter. If it's got to do with dementia, we have to all be on the same page. So because of that, I reached out to Jane Moore out there, and I said, look, I, I see what you folks are doing. I believe in what you're doing. It may not be the greatest symbol out there, but it's one that's really been getting, you know, recognition. I said, I'd like to jump on board and try to push this if I can here in the U.S. And, you know, so I started doing that with their approval, and, you know, we've made a lot of progress. In fact, you know, one of your sponsors, ADI, has been fabulous. They came on board, and uh, they are now one of the key people backing this project up. We've had Tipa Snow come on board and many other people who have come on board. I'm still waiting for the Alzheimer's Association to jump on board and uh, other people like us against Alzheimer's to jump on board. But time, you know, it's going to happen, I think, with time. Uh, But I think it has to happen because if we all want to show that we support dementia, that's what they're going to need to do. And I'm not asking people to change their existing logos or anything like that. I'm just asking them to add this additional logo to their existing page somewhere in representation for all those who are living with this disease and for the caregivers who have to deal with it and for the families who have to deal with it. This is a grassroots, and we just want people to support us. So that's it. And I I really agree with you. I I think, uh, you know, everyone is so used to being so siloed and so proprietary and everybody wants to come up with their own thing. And, you know, this is a disease much bigger than any entity, much bigger than any individual, any organization. And we just need to come together to show collaboration and a joined force in terms of effort. It doesn't... um, it, it doesn't belittle 
anyone to do that. It doesn't take away from anything they're doing. It just adds to it. It shows that they are part of a bigger cause than themselves. And even for large organizations, I think that that is a massive, massive statement to take on, um, one of um, social responsibility, because you know people cannot remember all of the different variables from all the different organizations. We need to streamline it, and we are a global society. Um, you know, we aren't just talking to the neighbor next door anymore or people within our own country. Um, people live all over the world, and we need one symbol to be able to to move forward, um, you know, with, with changing this disease. Now, I know that you need to get Ronnie Michael to a meeting, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us, but I don't want you to be late <laughs> for that meeting as well. It's always wonderful to to talk to you. So, so I, again, I thank you so much for for uh, spending time with us this morning. Is there any last comment that you want to make to our audience? Just one quick thing. I think you mentioned that uh, the FTD folks might have been on or coming on. I think uh, one of the issues is they're one of the people who, unfortunately, with the silos, uh, they're trying not to support this particular uh, mission of the Purple Angel. So if they are coming on your show, please uh, try to talk them into it. Uh, but other than that, Lori, I thank you very much for uh, taking the time to uh, have me on here. And, uh, you know, till next time. Okay, wonderful. And we'll see you uh, next week for Dementia Chats, too. So Michael is one of our experts on Dementia Chats, our webinar we do as well. So thank you, Michael. Have a wonderful day. You too now. Bye-bye, Lori. Bye. Well, I know um, Hugo that is still trying. That will get people to freaking do shit. They didn't... Oops. <laughs> Let's see. Um, we still have uh, Hugo trying to trying to get with us, uh, and so I'm I'm still hopeful that maybe he'll be able to get through. Uh, he's having some complications uh, calling in on Skype, uh, and he is over in the UK. Um, Hugo. Um, DeWall wrote a fabulous book called Designing and Delivering Dementia Services. And that is, uh, that's an incredible, incredible book. Um, I'm going to kind of hold off on going into details of that in hopes that he'll still be able to go through, uh, get through on the phone line here yet. And in the meantime, I'm just going to cover some um, things that I usually do kind of mid-show um, we we posted quite a quite a few things that I think might be of interest. And again, Alzheimer's Speaks is about raising voice of all. It's you know, it's about getting information into the hands of those that need it. So I like to highlight some of the things that we feature, uh, just because maybe then you're gonna wanna go and read it or watch it and share it with those that you know. So last week, on September 24th, we had a radio show, and it was called A Path Called Dementia, and it was Life with Louis Body. And if you are were interested at all in learning more about Louis Body, the Louis Body Association was on for that show. They gave us great, great information. We also had James Creasy with Jiminy Wicket on. And Jiminy Wicket, for those of you that don't know, is the adaptive croquet 
program, and we were out in New York, actually at Rockefeller Center, uh, playing that. And I just talked with James yesterday, and he has got lots of great connections. He stayed in New York an extra week, and there's going to be some fabulous things, I think, launching in uh, 2014 with his program. So if you are a community or even a family that's just looking at a way to engage people, you can use the Jiminy Wicket program, uh, Croquet, uh, to go ahead and engage and have smiles, which again is a, a fabulous way to connect and have fun. I know our memory cafe was playing uh, Croquet here in Minnesota when I was out in New York. Um, our next show will be on the 8th. And um, for that show, we're going to be talking about the difference between aphasia and dementia. Um, and so we're going to have the Aphasia Association on. Plus, we are going to have a couple of my favorite people in the world on. Um, Lori Ellis, uh, who is a, a master uh, yoga instructor and uh, an expert on breathing, which sounds really kind of silly. And then my good friend, Nancy uh, Chakran, who is a professional photographer and artist, and they have um, done this beautiful book on the art of friendship with yoga poses. And they're going to talk about breathing and meditation and reducing stress which I think will be a wonderful, wonderful show as well. Our last Dementia Chats, which is the webinar that we do twice a month on the second and fourth Tuesday of each uh, each month, uh, we talked about the effects of the silos. So Michael uh, Ellenbogen, who was just with us, was there, and we had uh, Steve Poneth was with us, and I, th I believe Harry Urban was with us as well on that show, and we just had a really nice conversation talking about the importance of collaboration. We also had a really interesting conversation about doctors and dealing with doctors and, and raising awareness. So if you have a topic that you're interested in us discussing, um, please let me know, and we will go ahead and um, and and try to incorporate that into the conversation. Those webinars are all free, and you can find uh, the Dementia Chats information on the Alzheimer's Speaks page, and uh, just go to the About page, and, and then the Dementia Chats has its own private page. That's where all the recorded sessions are as well um, on that. The past uh, week, um, we've had lots of kind of fun things on the blog as well. Several different videos. Um, one was uh, Young Hope Living with Early Onset, and that was with Tracy Mobley, and really a powerful, powerful video about what life is like for a young woman and her family with dementia. Uh, the Purple Rain Project, which is a young teenage girl uh, by the name of Jordan, uh, did another powerful video um, that is set to poems and pictures about uh, life with dementia. And then there is a... Uh, a film director over in Japan whose mother has uh, 
dementia, and she just did a little piece about celebrating her mom's birthday, which was very interesting because they had the celebration, and then a day later, what happened as well with that. Um, and then the last video was one that a young daughter um, did, and it was about facing her own mother's diagnosis. And so that was extremely, extremely interesting. So, you know, if you've got time, just go to the Alzheimer's Speaks website. And then over in the upper right-hand corner is our scroll of our blogs, and you'll be able to go ahead and find information on each of those videos. A few of the articles that were powerful was a journey to remember, which was done actually by a new intern of mine, uh, Michelle, and I would encourage you to go ahead and check that out. And then Lisa Hirsch, for those of you that know Lisa, uh, she has written a book about her journey, which is kind of a bittersweet journey about her mother's uh, and her journey with dementia. And Lisa is offering her um, ebook free. And so you can go to the website to go ahead and uh, and download that. Uh, Carol Larkin, who many of you are familiar with, she writes a lot for Alzheimer's Speaks and also the um, Alzheimer's Reading Room. She owns um, Third Age Services and is a, very much a dementia expert. Uh, wrote an interesting article on the file clerks of our mind, and that might be something that you find interesting. Um, the last thing that I want to mention for um, that was on the blog was really, really uh, a very powerful story, and it was written by a son about his mother, and it, it talks about Mother's Day of 2007. Um, and it's all—it's called our last 15 minutes, and it is um, just very, very powerful. We we have just a ton of comments regarding um, regarding that um, that piece, and so I would encourage you to um, go ahead and. Um, and read that story as well. Um, again, very, very good. I am very sad to say it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get Hugo um, through the program today, which is so disappointing. I was really looking forward to uh, trying to be able to have him uh, on the show. He said he can hear me loud and clear, um, and he wishes he was here but we just cannot get the the lines of communication going through. So I'm going to just tell you a little bit about this extraordinary man, and I, I so wish he was here. Um, Dr. Hugo DeWall, you know, is he's really renowned over in the UK, and he's done a lot of international things as well. But he, he got his uh, MD at the Free University of Amsterdam back in 1989. And then he continued to do a lot of training um, in the UK. He was appointed as a consultant in old age psychiatry in Norfolk in 1998. 
and he was appointed as the senior lecturer at the University of East, uh, East Angela, I think it is, in 2007, and as the inaugural head of the school and associate postdoctorate dean for the psychiatry of East of England, and um, that's headquarters over in Cambridge. He also had um, other responsibilities of psychiatric training and recruitment um, in various areas, and he's he has just done so much. He is he's been published all over the place. Um, since 2011, he uh, leads on. Uh, the development of the Norfolk Dementia Care Academy, which has produced a comprehensive package of education, training, and research in dementia care for the wider healthcare sector. And he has also formulated the concept of dynamic dementia care with his um, Workforce development tool, it combines person-centered care and learner-centered education and self-reflection in clinical practice and combining all these components into a continuous loop, which I think is really interesting. I, I have not seen that done here in the States. Um, if people are, you know, familiar or not familiar um, with with uh, with Hugo, please feel free to, you know, call in with a question. I can pose it to him. He can probably chat with us through the chat box, um, or you can use your chat box as well if you've got a specific question regarding. Um, designing and delivering dementia services. We'll see if we can communicate with him in that in that uh in that format. Um he is heavily involved in developing community services for people with dementia and um you know, I just I don't even know what to say about this man. We had a wonderful wonderful conversation and I so wanted to share all he is doing with you, um, I would really encourage people to go ahead and and get this book because it is quite, quite powerful. Um, maybe what I can do is to check he's writing me a little note here i need to I need to flip to page two twenty two he's telling me so let me see if i can if I can see what he's talking about here, and it has to do with the dynamic dementia care um and he, he they've got a really nice um outliner graphic here which has the dynamic dementia practice in the middle and then up above it's practice implementation and review um to the right it's about distressed behaviors at the bottom it says enhanced observation and reflection and then to the far left, it's a care solution. And so the arrows go all the way around the outside, but then the dynamic practice goes up and down and to the side. So it just shows kind of this interconnectivity um, with all of this. And, um, you know, the references in this book and the detail, it's all indexed in the background too, but it really is uh, loaded, loaded with tons and tons of of great information. Um, 
here. Um, Hugo, I'm going to pose a question to you, and there might be a little bit of, of um, silence here. I'll try to kind of fill the air. But can you tell people what are the what what is the number one thing that you would want people to know about you, other than we have to tell them how to get a hold of you, um, which is via email at d e w a a l. And that's D A or D E W A A L at doctors dot UK. No, it's not doctors dot org dot UK. Am I messing that up? So it's D E W A A L at doctors dot org dot UK. And he is writing me a note here, so we'll see what he says. Um He's talking, of course, that maybe we can try another another time to do this and actually have a solid conversation. Um, he said, you know, bottom line with the dynamic dementia care, it essentially means anyone looking after people with dementia professionally need to consistently and, and uh, reflect on what is going well and what is not. And this self-reflection is used to develop best practices, which then helps teach, uh, which makes a lot, a lot of sense. It's, uh, you know, I've personally been on this journey for 30 years, and I'm no doctor by any stretch. I'm just a daughter who's kind of been on this path, but reflection has been a critical piece in terms of trying to find remedies He's noted here a main thing. Um, he's passionate about um, us, the professional healthcare workers, understanding the person within the illness, so to speak. The diagnostic label, although necessary, all too often leads to the person um, being veiled behind it and someone's personhood goes missing, which I, I really think is very important and um, is very true. You know, I always talk, um, you know, my way of, of saying that is I always say that I, I don't want people to live um, as the disease. I want them to learn how to live with it. And I think he's basically saying the same thing. You know, we've got that same person-centered philosophy of there is life with this disease and there's absolutely no reason um, for a person to think uh, that there's not. Uh, there's just so, so much to offer. Um, he's noting here the other important issue is that the diagnostic label doesn't tell much. Um, if anything, about the person's needs. And therefore, it also doesn't tell much about how services should be configured or delivered. And, and I think that that is brilliant, and I think that that is something that is, for the most part, um, not considered uh, very often. And I think it is really, really critical in terms of care delivery and how uh, how we really engage somebody how can you engage somebody if you don't don't even know who they are or what their what their needs are so he's still writing away here I, and i see that our next guests are are coming on board so that is wonderful 
I appreciate it, and I appreciate everybody kind of going with the flow here. We'll we'll get Dr. Hugo DeWall uh, on the show where he can actually talk live and doesn't have to doesn't have to type uh, to us for answers here. He says he is actively trying to construct ways in which all the various services are accessible in a simple way, a bit like using the London underground map. If one is totally new to London or dementia, one only needs to know where one is and where one wants to be. And the map, with a little practice, can show you the way, even if you don't speak a word of English. Well, I'll have to remember that because I would love to love to be on a journey over there. <laughs> I'll have to see see how that goes. Well, Hugo, I I thank you so much for trying this past hour to be to be with us and I really encourage people to check out his book Designing and Developing Dementia Services. Again, Designing and Developing Dementia Services. He's got a couple of uh co-authors there, John O'Brien, David Ames and uh Constantine, I'll probably crucify her last name, but I'll try Lycatos and uh, and then Hugo DeWall. And it is a book by Wiley uh, Blackwell, and it's a beautiful. It's beautifully designed, and it will be. Um, I know it will be something that will help you out uh, tremendously. So um, again, thank you so much, Hugo, for. Um, for all that you are doing, and we definitely will figure out a way to to get you um, onto the show live with us. So in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and um, and introduce our next guest here uh, because we have the honor of having the Association for Frontal uh, Temporal Degeneration with us, and the Association... Um, I'm going to call them AFTD, or some people just call them FTD, is a non-for-profit organization which was founded in 2002 to advocate for more funding uh, to uh, to in, uh, into the causes and the treatments of frontal temporal degeneration, as well as provide caregivers and patients with a dependable source of accurate reliable information and support. In the 10 years since it was um, conceived, AFTD has awarded more than $1.3 million in research grants, and they've hosted several scientific meetings. They've helped to create the U.S. National uh, Reciprocity for Data on FTD patients, and they've answered more than 10,000 calls to their helpline. They have also created new resources for patients, families, and professionals who live and work with FTD. So I am going to um, introduce, we have three guests that are going to be going to be with us today. Um, the first is Susan Dickinson, and she joined FTD. Uh, uh, AFTD as the executive director in 2008. She is a certified um, genetic counselor who brings more than 20 years of experience 
into uh, into her role as director, and she facilitates communications um, among the layperson, uh, the scientific, and the medical communities. Her tenure at AFTD, um, the organization has implemented uh, a really aggressive strategy for growth, and they have more than tripled its budget, expanding its professional staff from three to nine. And Susan holds um, an MS in genetic counseling from the Arcadia University. And I am going to go ahead and just pull her into the conversation. So how are you doing today, Susan? I'm fine, Lori. Thank you for having us on. Well, thanks for being here, and I'm hoping that we don't have technical difficulties. I'm so glad to see you guys were able to get through. Poor Hugo, we were we were trying so hard to uh, to make that work. I'm going to go ahead and introduce uh, the other two that are with you as well, and then we'll go ahead and get started with our conversation. Um, Paul Lester uh, has a wife, Arnett, and she was diagnosed with behavioral variant FTD in October um, of 06 at the age of 54. And, you know, 54, that's ringing bells all over my head because that's my age. And, you know, most of us think that that is going to happen at that age. He said it, it took about six months um, worth of visits to psychologists and general practitioners and psychiatrists and neurologists to actually get a diagnosis, but that he feels really fortunate that it was only six months. And that might sound long to a lot of our listeners, but for a diagnosis um, in dementia, that really isn't too bad. Paul says that he can trace Arnett symptoms back to 2003, so that would put her at 51, which was also around the time her mother had passed. And Arnett, just for a little background, had her master's in nursing, but she had to stop working in uh, September of 05. She says that uh, she has um, never shown one bit of insight in terms of the disease. So fortunately that she is a very happy and uh, content person with this disease. So welcome, Paul. How are you today? Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I really appreciate you hosting the call, Lori. Oh, well, I am I am thrilled to have you on and I'm going to just pull in our our next person here. Oh, I did want to mention too um well Paul and Arnett have um two children in college, Aaron who's 20 and Brian who's 18, and I think that having young children, you know, it just shifts up the mix a little bit more too. So, we're going to be really interested in our our conversation with them. Um and uh, they live in Riley, it looks like, North Carolina, and that Paul has been really, really active with support groups and AFTD's uh, task force on families with children as well. Our third guest that's going to participate in this conversation is Cheryl Sparks. And Cheryl and Kenny Sparks um, and, and got involved basically because uh, when Kenny was 49 years old, he was diagnosed with FTD. Um, 
she retired from work as a dental hygienist so that they could spend more time together, and as the disease progressed, she could care for him. Uh, Kenny did pass away in 2011, um, but he was blessed to be at home with his wife, Cheryl, and their children, Alexandra and Graham, by his side. In 2008, CNN and AFTD did a piece highlighting the Sparks and how FTD affects young family. It was the first time on national television that this disease was really talked about and mentioned. Cheryl is now working as a photographer, and she has developed uh, skills for photography while capturing family moments as honestly and as sensitively as possible. So welcome, Cheryl. How are you today? I'm fine, Laurie. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm I'm really excited to have you all here. You know, I, I've been on this path for quite some time, and one of the things that, that I have found is that some, you know, there are so many different types of dementia and so many that are not talked about. And this one is, uh, you know, this one is just one that needs to come to the forefront. We are hearing more and more about it all the time. And so I think it would just uh, make sense if we could have maybe Susan talk about how does FTD different from Alzheimer's disease? Because Lord knows everybody thinks any type of dementia is Alzheimer's, and that's just not the case. No, and that's a frustration that many of our families bump into as well. Um, I think, Lori, really FTD differs from Alzheimer's in three critical ways. The first one is the fact that the parts of the brain that are dying are not the memory center. But as the name FTD implies, it's the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain that are affected. And what those areas of the brain control are things like personality, behavior, um, not, not memory. So the symptoms that our patients experience are things like loss of language, um, loss of their executive functioning, which means things like they experience a decrease in reasoning or a decrease in their judgment skills. They lack the ability to get up in the morning and make a plan for the day and follow that plan in a reasonable, rational um, way. Many of them become apathetic and lose the, the incentive to, to, to get up and go out and engage in the world as, as, as those of us, um, the rest of us do. Perhaps one of the most cruel symptoms that our patients experience are that most of them lose the ability to feel empathy and they lose the insight into the fact that they themselves have changed. And while, as you mentioned with Arnett Lester, on the one hand, that can be comforting to someone like Paul. He knows that Arnett is not herself um, experiencing what she's losing. At the same time, it's made all the more painful to those people who, who love the patient or the people around them because that patient often refuses to, to acknowledge that they themselves have a disease or have changed or that the the maybe bizarre or um, unthoughtful ways that they're behaving in any way have an impact on, on their family or the people around them. So the first real difference from Alzheimer's are those types of symptoms. Um, I think the second key way that FTD is distinguished from Alzheimer's is the fact that it on average, it is a younger onset disease. So typically, our patients experience their first 
um, symptoms in their 40s to their 60s, although sadly we have heard of patients as young as in their 20s. Um, but for the most part, what this means is that this disease is hitting a family at a very different time of life than your typical Alzheimer's patient who might be in their 70s, say. So our patients are quite probably still active professionals, maybe nearing the height of their career. They're engaged, productive members of society. Many of them are actively parenting, so many of them still have kids or teens at home, um, and had, there's a lot of growth and development the family is meant to be doing through those years. And all of a sudden, one of these parents is no longer um, really behaving as a parent, and I know that both Cheryl and Paul can tell you a little more about that firsthand. Um, it also means that it's a real different financial hit to the family because there's medical care for the whole family that's needed. Financial commitments like college are still ahead of the family. So it um, it hits a family at a very different time of life, and that defines the challenges that our families experience. Um, and then finally, the third thing that really distinguishes FTD is the fact that it is rare. So... The best guesses right now are there may be 50 to 60,000 people in the U.S. with FTD. Um, and that's much, much smaller than Alzheimer's, as you well know. Mm-hmm. So, and what it means is that in all likelihood, most of your listeners, your family members, your neighbors have never heard of FTD. And that has very specific ramifications for our family's experience. First of all, it means it's much more difficult to get an accurate diagnosis because that lack of awareness it does extend to clinicians who are trying to um who may not who may miss the diagnosis because they haven't seen it before. Um, secondly, when a family does finally get this diagnosis, it doesn't bring the comfort that a diagnosis with a more common disease does. So somebody else can go back home and say, oh, he has Alzheimer's or, oh, she has cancer. And there's that immediate sympathy and understanding just in society at large for what that disease name means and how it explains whatever symptoms went before. Our families return home and First of all, it's this long diagnosis that's hard to pronounce, frontotemporal degeneration. Even if you shorten it to FTD, there's none of that familiarity that that brings, um, none of the comfort and, and sense of common understanding. Um, so what we know is that that means that this, this makes this experience that much more isolating from our families, for our families than a, than a, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's does. So really the differences are in those three areas, symptoms, the younger onset, and the fact that it is so rare. Well, and those are those are pretty uh pretty big differentiation factors too, because I mean, even when I think of all the people I talk to about getting diagnosed and they talk about the struggles of even just with Alzheimer's, which is the most common and how difficult it is to get a diagnosis of that, then you you make it a a smaller, more concentrated, more unique disease and, you know, multiply that times probably 100 in terms of getting to the right people to get that diagnosis or, or to even to know what to communicate to the doctor. I think a lot of times it's probably very confusing for people as well um, because we all think the doctors all know all the specialties and they really they really don't. Um, you know, that's very true, Lori, and, and especially when you look at the kind of symptoms it is. A lot of our families, it's not necessarily you don't first think it's something medical. 
when it's your spouse who may be 45 or 50 and they go out and buy a sports car without conferring with you or um do something else that's you know that that's maybe the rest of us wouldn't wouldn't do in normal society because um the lack of social filters is one of the things that our fam- that our patients start to lack you know the first thing a lot of people think of is not there's a medical condition here you know mm-hmm. you start to think of is there is it a marital issue is um does he not love me anymore, or is there is it a midlife crisis? You know, we have a lot of, of other common reasons that people would look to initially other than a medical diagnosis for why these things are starting to happen. Yeah, very, very good point with the, the midlife crisis and doesn't love me anymore and those things because it, it does, you know, there are the personality changes that come that come with this disease. Um, I'm going to throw a question out to Paul and then to to Cheryl. Um, can uh, Paul, can you talk about kind of the differences that define the experience of living with this disease? You know, the impact on on not only you but your family. And so, um, to maybe share, uh, you know, up front a, a couple of, you know, kind of bizarre or different you know, symptoms, and I'm not saying that to be dramatic, but it, it, it just is the disease. So, Paul, could you could you share with us some symptoms? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I think the, the first, <clears throat> excuse me, the first symptom that we saw with Arnett was surrounded at the time. Uh, it was when she was 51. We live in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and went to Seattle, Washington, to visit her mom. And while we were there, her mom was experiencing um, some stabbing, very very severe stabbing pains in her back. And Arnett, having been a nurse, I, I expected that she would have shown more concern for her mother. And it wasn't that she wasn't concerned at all, but she wasn't her normal <clears throat> concerned self, um, mm-hmm. whether as daughter or as nurse. And then towards the end of our trip is when it got even stranger. Um, due to a mix-up with family, we actually didn't get to say goodbye in person to her mom. And her mom expressed to me on the phone that she was so disappointed that she didn't get to take any pictures with the kids. And I, I saw how important that was to her. These were her only grandkids. And uh, here, you know, we were 2,500 miles across the country, so I decided I had to go. I had to take the kids and uh, made some plans to sh- cut uh, one of our visits with some college friends of Arnett short so that we could go. And what was strange is Arnett just didn't, she wasn't concerned about her mom at all. She wanted to see her college friends. And so I ended up taking the kids got the pictures, which which was really good, and we got that taken care of. Um, but then when we came home, uh, we soon found out that Arnett's mom, uh, her breast cancer had metastasized in her liver and that she wouldn't last very long. And so I encouraged Arnett to go back and be with her mom, and, and Arnett, you know, um, Susan talked about loss of empathy. Arnett just didn't care about it. It wasn't important to her. <clears throat> Excuse me, and as her, as her mom failed, um, I remember one time Arnett called her mom, and she um she got off the phone and she was she was really almost disgusted and she said she couldn't even talk to me and it wasn't a sadness it was just a disdain that was like her mom was doing something wrong and that was so out of character for Arnett um and then uh when her mom actually passed uh, I sent Arnett back to you know to help with the funeral arrangements as well as cleaning out the house um later I learned that Arnett was inappropriately jovial at the funeral, 
And then when it came to cleaning the house, Arnett really wasn't any help. She did remember um, that she wanted her mom's um, china, and so that was pretty normal. But the only there was only two other things that she was concerned about. Uh, one was her mom had recently moved into assisted living, and I'll just say it this way, she got some new baggy granny underwear and got her name on them. Mm-hmm. Arnett made sure that she brought those home so that she could wear them. And then the other thing that Arnett did was, um, we, again, we found this out later, uh, her mom was kind of was from the Depression, and so she hoarded a lot of food. Arnett found a lot of the hoarded food and then hid it at her sister's house. So it was just very, very different, very out of character for Arnett. And I can tell you a few other things, but, but Cheryl might also want to be able to share. Okay. Um, Cheryl, do you want to tell us what, what you saw with Kenny? Yes. Um, Kenny's Kenny's type of dementia was um, non-fluent aphasia, um, which meant that his um, he lost executive skills, but also he had a difficult time in word finding. So we were um, at the time of close to diagnosis. Um, I had my, Alexander was away at college. Graham was still in high school. So kind of dealing with with that age group, which is all-encompassing for two parents, never mind one. And Kenny was busy with a company. Um, he and his brother had started a company. And we would, I would find that he would start a sentence and then stop mid-sentence and just never be able to continue with with it um he'd not be able to remember what he was trying to say um it then pinpointed down to not being able to come up with words um so we were able to um to identify that it was actually words that he knew what he wanted to say and he could describe what he wanted to say, but he couldn't come up with the words themselves. Um, He became tired. This was a man who used to get up at 5 in the morning and go to the gym and never, ever stopped. He would he would take naps he would he was exhausted all the time um it, things like that that just you just never ever thought that that you would be seeing in him um but his behavior was fine did he seem more apathetic in looking back yes but at the time we were raising two teenagers we had a very traditional marriage in that he was starting a business. He had started a business with his brother. They were extraordinarily busy. I was in charge of the household and the children. So our lives sort of spun separately but together. And if he came home and said, I lost my keys, I would, I'm sure, roll my eyes and say, Really? I'm dealing with two teenagers. I don't, you know, I don't have time. And it didn't ever occur to me that it could be for a reason other than, you know, you just need to find your keys. I'm dealing with these kids. Um, So those were the kind of things. Um, 
Did it seem as though we were drifting apart? Yes. But I think a lot of couples raising teenagers sort of feel that way. So it never again occurred to me that it was something that it was a serious problem. Well, and I think that that is so important. And, you know, what Susan said, you you don't always know that it's a medical issue. You you think it's a relationship issue that, you know, there's there's something going on here and communication isn't what it used to be cause, because that's what happens. Um, right. You know, especially when we've been married for a while and, you know, when you're dealing with the different kids' issues at different stages of life or our own parents' issues. I mean, uh, you know, things change and adjust, and that's what you do throughout marriage. And and you get to, I mean, I, I, I could hear myself saying exactly what you said, get your own keys. I'm dealing with this right now. <laughs> really? You know, I mean, I mean, that would just be like, I, I, I could just see my eyes rolling back going, Really? You're gonna bother. I know. I don't have time for this. (laughs) Yeah, it's like opening the door to find the ketchup, and it's right in front of you. You know, exactly. (laughs) Not, not my problem. You're an adult. Take care of it. And not knowing. I, I mean, I could just, I could so see myself getting really frustrated with that. How, how did your, how did your husband do with that? Um, because. did he feel the frustration or or any anger with the changes that were going on, or was he not affected? Like Paul had said, Arnett really wasn't affected by things, and and maybe she was. And I'll ask Paul that in just a second. He was um, work was very stressful. Um, so what I think ended up ha- so we did go to the doctors. Work was very very stressful. Um, and when we realized that, that he was having trouble with some word finding, we went to the doctors. He had a CAT scan. That came up negative. And um, our doctor had suggested possibly that he go on an SSRI um, just just for nerves, just just to get rid of a little bit of the anxiety. He did that, and it did help, but he hated the way it made him feel. So what he did was he took himself off of it, cold turkey, and um, within a month, all of the little symptoms came back immediately. So what what had developed very, very slowly came back full force, and we... Um, the kids and I were able to see the changes. And Kenny and I sat down and we put together a list because then we realized that something was was going on. And we were able to put together a list of changes that we had seen. And we were just pulling things from the sky, anything that looked as though it might possibly be a change, might possibly be something that, could be wrong and we called our our physician and she had us come right in so um so i mean we were fortunate because we did get an early diagnosis and and how long did your process take would you say from From start to finish well i would have to say from start to finish when he and i put that list together it was immediate they realized immediately when we put that list together. The problem with 
the type of FTD that Kenny had, in his office his symptoms were far greater than they were at home because he was um he was running the inside office so organization um taking orders that had to be filled all of those things were so important those were the things that he was not able to do effectively and they saw it at the office i never saw any of that and that was not conveyed to me so i didn't know what was going on they i in retrospect they conveyed to me that they thought he was possibly drinking it was possibly drugs he was possibly having an affair they didn't want to get involved oh, so lovely <laughs> so so therefore um you know it was it was just kind of a cluster of of everything going wrong at the same time but he would come home and home was a safe place so so he had far less symptoms at home than he did at the office so i would say that his symptoms at the office happened started maybe a year and a half before they really showed up at home once okay. we were able to put together this list at home we it was an immediate diagnosis Okay. Um, Paul, I've got a question for you. Um, okay. Through the, the process, um, did you find yourself getting short with Arnett's, um or frustrated, and did, did she feel any of that if, if that was the case? Um, I did. I got very frustrated with Arnett, um, and the kids could see it because um, <clears throat> Arnett became very compulsive about a lot of things. Should be? became compulsive about things that didn't matter so much and really was no longer concerned about a lot of the relationships in her life, whether it was me or the kids or friends. She just didn't seem to care. And so I would try to have these rational conversations with her. And I wasn't yelling or anything, but I'm sure I was firm. But we tried to talk through this, and she was just completely apathetic. She didn't understand the need for the conversation. She didn't participate very much. Um, And so... Um, my ki- the kids were sure that we were going to get a divorce. You know, they, of course, told me that mm-hmm. later. They didn't tell me that then. But she was unaffected. She did not know the difference. She was she was focused on, you know, she'd always been a saver, and I would say the disease um, magnified some of her prior traits. And so, like, she was always an avid recycler and reuser, and so she was doing anything like pulling cups out of the garbage at church so that she could wash the McDonald's cups and take them back to McDonald's so they could reuse them, or um, it was just some very strange things that she did. But it didn't seem strange to her, and I couldn't help her understand that it was unsanitary. So we talked about mm-hmm. it all the time, and I'm, I was very short with her at times, and the kids could see that. And like I said, they they assumed that we were headed towards divorce. Yeah, were how did how did this uh, you know get, given that you both had young families and Paul I'll start with you since I have you on the line, how did this impact the the kids and their relationship with their mom or even their friendships, um, you know, with with others, you know, bringing their friends over to the house, were there issues there at all? Uh, the kids really lost the relationship with their mom, and, and truth be told, they, they really now can't even remember who she was before the disease came. Um, uh, they just, she, was just, she was just distant, 
and there was no bringing her back. Now we did. She we did actually when we saw a therapist the first time, uh, um, we were able to coax our dad that instead of just going to straight to bed without saying a word to everybody, that she'd made sure she came to everybody and gave him a hug and a kiss and and said good night and I love you. So she was coachable at first, but. Um, you know, for me, it was clear that it wasn't coming from her heart, but I was glad that she was trying it anyway. Um, so the kids became very remote from their mom. So one of the things I had to do, and I did it very intentionally early, was I sought out um, mentors, at, especially at church for the kids. Because um, they did, they were, you know, I was very focused on trying to figure out what was going on with Arnett. And I knew that even I couldn't care for them the way they needed it, so I made sure that they had uh, caring adults at church that would focus on them. And it was really important because our families were all on the West Coast versus us being in North Carolina. So they, you know, they were missing that. Uh, but we found some great, great people to to help out, and uh, so that was helpful for them. But but the actual relationship with their mom. Um, they, I mean, they cared about her, and and after we got the diagnosis, they understood it. But there was there wasn't anything that they could do. It was too late. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's just, it's so, I mean, it, it's so sad to hear that. And I, I understand it and I can rationalize it, but it's just, it's just so sad um, that there isn't something else um, to be able to make that connection or, or recapture that time. Um, you know, with, hmm let me say one thing we did, and we tried to do early, is we did travel. We traveled as a family to make some memories, and so we took a cruise to Alaska with my mom and dad. Uh, we went to Maui to, to spend time with our net sister, and then we also took a trip to England. So we formed some memories of trips that we went. It wasn't necessarily memorable that um, how we had this relationship with our net, but it was things that we did as a family that were really important. So we tried to establish some of those things early before we knew that, you know, we we were afraid she wouldn't be able to travel, and that did happen. But that did help as well. Okay. And Cheryl, well, how about I, you? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, was that Susan or Cheryl? It, it was Susan. I'm sorry. I was just going to jump okay. in with something else that I, I don't think either – Paul or Cheryl experience, but it alludes to something that you just asked about. Um, a lot of our other families with school-age children, um, some of the parents' behaviors can be even more alienating um, than our net experience. So um, if dad hogs the remote and nobody nobody else ever gets to control the TV, or if mom sits at the kitchen table and will only eat Cheetos all day long, you know, it, it's it's strange and it's unusual and it's unnerving because adults in your life are not meant to be that unpredictable and irrational. So mm-hmm. for kids in that kind where those those kind of behaviors it does very quickly become um there there's the aspect of shame to it and and they do they they won't bring their friends home. Um and so there is that added aspect to some of these kids who are are approaching adolescence and have all that important work to do, you know, at, at that stage of life to figuring out who they are. And it's very disruptive to the whole family system to essentially have one of the parents regress and be so unpredictable and just need, require so much of the family energy um, before and after they they arrive at the fact that it is a medical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably for me one of the most 
one of my biggest regrets because um, my, mine were older. Mine were 18 and 20 um, when Kenny was diagnosed. Um, my daughter was in college. Um, Graham was going to college. Um, and it it is a completely isolating disease. No one knows anything about it. Um, because of the business my husband was in, his name was on bonds and things like that. So we really couldn't, we really tried to keep it quiet so that, so that his brother, the company did not, so that it didn't affect the company. So, so, so we tried to, to just keep it very, very quiet. So there wasn't anybody I could really talk to about it. Um, that being said, at that age, children want to be independent. They want to, they feel they can handle everything. It's okay, Mom, we can, we can do this. We can handle it. So to bring somebody in to sort of be mentors, it's too late at that age. They're 20 and they're 18. They're not going to, you know, your family, we, have, we were a really close-knit family, um, there isn't that person that you can all of a sudden just plop out of somewhere or pick out of somewhere to bring in. Um, so it was difficult, and my children most definitely suffered because of that, um, because I needed to be there for Kenny. Um, and And... It was a critical time for them. It was a critical time in their lives. Yes, they were older. Yes, they're they're you know in college, and some people would just make their own way at that time. But they needed their parents. They definitely needed their parents, and they didn't have them. Even when I was there, my head and my heart was torn. I, I can imagine. I, I can just imagine. We do have a comment. I'm just going to read a couple of things on the chat box. And there's somebody who might be a caller. I'm not quite sure yet. I'll have to check. Um, but Lynette is saying, my uncle was diagnosed with FTD at the age of 78. The personality changes were noticed by his sister, who's her mother, who spoke to him frequently on the phone. She kept, um, you know, oops, it just bumped me here. Um and so said that there was, you know, some big changes um, mood-wise and that he he didn't seem to connect like he used to, even when um, his godson was killed in a car accident. Um, it, it just, the connection just wasn't there. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting um, disease in and of itself. Now we have somebody on from a 856 number and it looks like they pa- pressed one to ask a question or um, or state a, uh, state a comment. So I'm going to go ahead and pull in this person from 856 and if you have a question or comment you're live on the air if you want to state your name and uh, let us know what you would like to state. If you're an 856 number, sometimes people will just push the number and not necessarily have a question either, and that's okay to say Say that. I don't have a question. I'm sorry. 
That's quite all right. I just want to make sure. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll put you back on hold then, and we'll get back to our to our conversation. Um, Paul, with your kids, did did they have issues at all in terms of? Um, uh, you know how to cope with their mom. I know that you said it was it was just a, a difficult thing where the relationship it sounds like it kind of disintegrated because there wasn't anything that they could really do. But do you remember any episodes or or them coming to you and and having a conversation about what do I do or or how do we how do we move forward with this disease? The thing I probably remember most is embarrassment. Um, one of the things mm-hmm. that happened with Arnette is um, was was at church, and, and during church, Arnette would laugh really loud, out loud in the middle of the service for no apparent reason. Or if we were, you know, going somewhere and Arnette might see someone stumble, she would laugh really loud. Um, uh, if we would go to a meal that was being served at church, the... Um, you know, Arnett would eat very quickly, and then she would, if she didn't think that they were serving the dessert quick enough, she'd go in the kitchen and start bringing it out herself. And the kids were just very, very embarrassed when things like this. And so what, you know, what we ended up doing um, was we just tried to avoid certain situations. We couldn't avoid everything, um, but they were very embarrassed. And so what I tried to not do, initially I over, I over. Uh, overreacted and tried to change what Arnett was doing. Of course, that went nowhere because that just made her more determined to do what she wanted to do. So I learned to not overreact. Um, and we just learned to um, to just try to go with the flow and avoid situations that could be problematic. Um, we, mm-hmm. did find, we did find social situations where some friends were just very accepting and understanding of whatever Arnett did. And so we always knew that if they invited us over, it was okay. And even though we might be a little embarrassed about what Arnett might do, that they were okay with it and that we didn't have to worry. So we tried to do that, but you know, we just tried to avoid the embarrassing situations as much as we could in public. Well, and it's hard to find family and friends that are that accepting, you know, to be okay, too. I, I hear that all the time from people. Um, it's hard to find those safe environments where you truly feel feel comfortable. Um, Lynette is asking, you know, she's the one that had um, her uncle at 78 was was diagnosed, and she's just wondering if his symptoms were <clears throat> were typical with not being affected, you know, by the grandson dying. And she said it took them almost 18 months to get a full diagnosis, and then his health um, started to um, change rapidly. And um, she said that, you know, the whole family was just really in shock, you know, with this whole process. And I'm trying to see what else. uh, Her mom thought that there was some type of form of dementia but wasn't quite sure. And he he lived in a rural part of uh, the UK, and he seemed really depressed and and a bit paranoid, and kind of refused to go to doctors. Is that would those be typical signs, Susan? And I know you're not a doctor um, <laughs> in terms of we're not doing a formal diagnosis, but are, are some of those signs typical of FTD? I'd say yes. Everything that Lynette listed are symptoms that we have heard from from several families. 
obviously in her uncle's case, onset was on, on the late end that we see for FTD, but that presentation is sounds like a, a, a pretty common one for behavioral variant FTD. Okay. Great. Now, Susan, can you tell us, is, is there any treatment at all, you know, for for people diagnosed with this disease or, you know, maybe you can give us some more facts. Sure. Um, and, you know, Lori, that's one of the, you know, talk about adding insult to injury for um, actually for Paul and Cheryl actually have both have rather expedient stories on how fast they did get to an accurate diagnosis. So in that one regard, I would say they're both fairly lucky. It's not uncommon for families um, to experience a series of misdiagnoses over maybe as long as five years. Again, it goes back to those type of symptoms we talked about. Um, many of our patients are misdiagnosed with a psychiatric disorder um, or Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so that that really exacerbates the whole journey for the family. And once they finally do get this diagnosis, the answer is no. There is no disease-modifying treatment approved for FTD. So what our clinicians are left with are borrowing from other indications to try to to try to address the symptoms that the families find most troublesome and most disruptive in their everyday life. Um, sadly, here again, the misdiagnosis can really present a problem because um, some of the some of the drugs, specifically the cholinesterase inhibitors, so Exelon or Aricept, the drugs in that family that are approved and effective against a lot of cases of Alzheimer's disease, um, actually exacerbate the symptoms of FTD patients. So this is a case where literally misdiagnosis can do harm to the FTD patients. Um, as I said, though, there are no no approved treatments for FTD, so so the clinicians are left trying to address the symptoms um, that the family finds finds troublesome. And um, also increasingly, working with families like Paul's and Cheryl's, we are finding um, different ways to to manage the disease to help to help families. Um, as Paul said, for instance, he learned to try not to control Arnett or try not to stop her because there was just no way that she was able to respond to that. So one effective way of management, you've heard him say already, is he learned to just avoid those kind of situations that were going were gonna to set off some of those embarrassing symptoms of Arnett's. So it's strategies like those that are really um, the most helpful and that our families are learning from each other and through AFTD. Um, it's, it's really the feet on the ground and the experience that is, is leading the way until we can get effective drugs to, to treat or cure the medical condition itself. Okay. I have a question for you. If somebody is, is put on a drug that, you know, kind of makes the, the FTD flare, does it, if, it, if they go, um, if they're removed from it, does that, um, do their symptoms resolve or do they stay at that level? What, what have people found? And I'm sure it varies. Right. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a, a physician, but my understanding is no that that if you can get them back off of those um, those drugs that exacerbate the symptoms, they get back to I'd say their normal disease level. You know that I can uh, I can actually speak to this a little good. bit. Um, oh, okay, great. Um, um, Kenny 
Kenny, his last year, um, had uh, a grand mal seizure, which is, it's rare, but it does occasionally happen to um, FTD, um, persons with FTD. Um, When he went to, um, he he was put on an anti-seizure medication, which made his symptoms horrific. He could not sleep. He couldn't sit still. He he became agitated. Just symptoms that were beyond, much more behavioral, whereas his symptoms prior to that were not behavioral at all. Um, we were going back and forth to his neurologist probably every third day to try to figure out what was going on. He was just not sleeping, which meant we were not sleeping. Um, So he ended up going into the hospital. He went into a neuropsych ward, and I kept saying to these doctors who had never treated anybody with FTD, so you're dealing with physicians, neurologists who have never treated this disease. Um, I kept saying to them, if you just take him off the anti-seizure medicine, he will be fine. He will go back to being the way he is because the, I knew that that was the only thing that had changed. And it took a month to for them to attempt different drugs, attempt different anti-seizure medicines, and finally they put him on oh they took him off of everything and he went back to being our Kenny. Um so what this disease does to the body, to the mind, to how it reacts to medicines is amazing. It there's no predicting. Well that's that's good to know and I appreciate you you sharing and just kind of reiterating uh what uh what Susan said there because you know this this disease I mean any of the dementias it's just so individualized and has so many variables uh but but this one is is very unique in terms of um the behavioral changes and and so forth now you know I have heard over the the years that um, things can can spiral downward quickly um, with this disease, kind of without any warning. And Paul, did you see that with Arnett at all? Um, Arnett's pro- progress or progress um, on the disease continues to be relatively slow. I have heard the same thing. Um, when I've heard that it's happened many times, it, it has been in terms of moving very quickly. It can be after a fall. Uh, it can be. It has been after seizures and other people in our support groups where I've heard that. But in our own personal experience, our net hasn't gone through any rapid changes. It's all been relatively gradual. Okay. How about with with Kenny? What did you see, Cheryl? Um, yes. Um, it. Kenny had the seizure in February of 2011. He came home and he was back to being how he was prior to the seizure um, for for quite a bit. But the last two months of his life, he passed away at the end of August. 
um, the last two months of his life, two and a half months of his life, things changed so rapidly. It was primary. He was unable to to chew and swallow food, so that's one of the things that that can happen. So we had to figure out a different way to get nutrition into him, and um, and and that was basically what happened. He was he was just not getting the nutrition um that he needed. Mm, okay. Um Susan, anything that you want to add in terms of of what your experience has been in terms of kind of time frame with this disease? Yeah. So so what we know is our clinicians tell us, again, on average, um, FTD pro- does progress much faster than Alzheimer's does. Um, of course, there's great variability. So if you were to receive a diagnosis today, what you would be told is this disease might last two years. It might last 17 or 18 years. We can't tell you where in that spectrum your course will lie. Um, the average is about seven or eight years. Um, we know most people it is kind of a a stepwise progression down. So we know there's only, you know, this disease, as with Alzheimer's, it's it's a one-way trip. Um, it's going to be a story of, of losing your faculties, losing your abilities. And without effective treatment and a cure, we all know the end is, is you know, a foregone conclusion. Exactly how that happens with any family, um, it's it's hard to guess, but you do often see the kind of progression where they'll be on a plateau and then for whatever reason, and sometimes, as Paul says, it could be a fall or a seizure, just as likely nobody knows why, but then they'll drop off and they'll 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 get more serious and then they'll plateau again at this new level. So what that means, so it's kind of like a staircase going down, if you will. And what that means okay. for our families from a pragmatic standpoint is, They'll be on a plateau and, and they'll be dealing with it. You know, they'll maybe be be having uh, two friends come in half day a week so that that the 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 spouse can go out and get the grocery shopping done or you know get the errands done. Um, whatever it is working and and everybody's able to go along, you fall off one of these little cliffs again, and you're very you're at a totally different point. And it takes a lot of energy and a lot of wherewithal a lot of being willing to stand up and ask for help, which is a very difficult thing for many of these families to do, to kind of regroup and say, all right, we're at this stage now, and maybe we need to find an adult daycare center three days a week. Or, you know, we need to find new um, supports and new resources to help us because we're at a different place all of a sudden. So there's this constant reorienting and, and readjusting um, to whatever the daily reality is with with their loved one. Paul, did you have a comment? I was going to say that that's a good description because, as for example, Arnett had not been exhibiting any issues with incontinence, and then I'm not kidding. One day, every day of the week, I came home from work, and there were issues. And so I, I honestly didn't know where to start, but fortunately there was a geriatric care manager that was part of a support group, and I emailed her and I said, I don't know where to even start. I don't know anything about products or anything. And she helped me out, gave me the information I needed, and then I immediately also checked what the options would be for um, adult daycare uh, and was able to get her into adult daycare for uh, fairly quickly. 
And then um, she really didn't have any uh, major issues with incontinence for probably six months, but then when it started, it just really never stopped. Mm-hmm. And for Kenny, when it when that started, it didn't stop at all. He was at home with me the whole time. Um, so I had um, two incredible caregivers who would come in um, a couple of hours all most days um, and take him out, take him out for rides, take him to the gym and just be with him. And they were just so respectful and just uh, gave him the dignity that he really deserved because he was still very sensitive um, and aware if somebody was talking down to him or if somebody treated him any differently than they had before. And it would hurt his feelings. It would truly hurt his feelings. Um, As sick as he was, he knew. Um, So I had to be very careful as to who I had be around him and who I had as caregivers. Um, I think for the caregiver, it's, it's just you're on such a heightened sense of vigilance um, the whole time, um, just making sure that they are okay. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that, because they are so aware, at least that was that was the case for me with Kenny. Well, it, it sounds just exhausting, um, you know, as a caregiver and, and to watch your loved one go through this disease and not not knowing that there's not a cure and there's really not a treatment. Are there any approaches, Cheryl, um, that you think you might be able to share with others in terms of dealing with the disease? I think one thing that Paul said, which is, I, I think, just so important, and, and actually, actually our neurologist said this, watch your situations. Be Be very careful and be vigilant as to where you go and who you're around. And if you sense that you're in a situation that's going to cause stress, avoid it. Just don't do not do that. And it doesn't matter what other people think. It just doesn't matter. You have to protect the person with this disease because you are, it's your job. That's your job to make sure that they are okay and to make sure that they still are able to live with some sense of dignity. And I think that um I think that that's the most important thing is to their dignity is being stripped away from them every second of every day. So if you can in any way you can keep them somewhat insulated um and and thinking that things are okay, it's going to make their life a little bit better. Um, and and that's what I did. And I can't tell you whether that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. It's what worked for us. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that that's one of the keys is you have to figure out what you're capable of doing, and and what works for you and your family. I, I would agree, and so many times people just want this this blanket answer, and it doesn't work that way. It is so individualized, and um, 
you know, we need to we need to look at those approaches. Well, I can't believe our time is flying by. We only have about eight minutes left. But Paul, it was, can you talk about um, briefly what was the most difficult thing about this disease for you? Yeah, I would I would say there was probably two things. One one is is suddenly becoming almost a single parent plus caring for Arnett. Um, up to the point when Arnett started having issues, um, Arnett worked part-time uh, as a nurse, and she really took care of all of the transportation for the kids, all their activities at church and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden um, she was diagnosed, and then she lost her, uh, her driver's license. Um, and so it was up to me. And so all of a sudden, you know, I was the parent. And it was it was very difficult for me. It was it was uh, it's, it's, it was very stressful. Um, I learned to accept rides when they were offered for the kids, and then I even learned to um, to even ask for rides. Um, the other thing that was difficult, especially early, was you know when something like this happens in a marriage, you want to be able to to talk to your spouse about it. And because Arnett, she lost her insight. She couldn't really see it, and so even now, <clears throat> you know, I wish that we could have been able to process the disease. You like to be able to process process something like that with somebody, but, you know, we never had a chance to, to resolve that. And so um, those were probably a couple of the most difficult things for me. Okay. How about you, Cheryl? Um, I think I think initially um, when, after the fog cleared, after the diagnosis, I think the reality that I would not be growing old with this person who was my best friend, that was beyond the most difficult thing. Um, and then you realize that that's just what life is going to be. So you get on, you go on with that. Um and then having to be the bad guy, because as much as I could protect him and I could insulate him, I was also the one who had to limit him and in order to keep him safe. So so if he was going to get angry with anybody, it was going to be with me. That was oftentimes hard. Um, and then I would have to save the guilt in not being there for my children. Um those three things, I I think, in going through this, um, were the three most difficult things. I can, it, you know, it it's it's such an all encompassing journey, you know, in terms of losing your your spouse, you know, your your best friend, your lover, um, your co-parent. I mean, so many levels that you're dealing with and then right. trying to divide your time up between taking care of them and taking care of your kids and then just doing all the stuff you normally have to do plus probably what they used to do. Um, the burdens are great and we, we just really need to be able to find, I mean, it'd be great to find a cure, but in the meantime, we have to find more support for families um, dealing with this. Um, Susan, do you have any last comments you'd like to make? We've got about five minutes left. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I think I would just 
encourage any of your listeners um, who who are living with this disease or curious about it to please go to our website. I think we're listed on your on your site, Lori. Um, it's www.theaftd.org. Um, we're here to help. You're right, we don't have approved treatments or a cure yet, but I think along with the generosity of families like Cheryl's and Paul's who are are, are willing to open up and um, share with their support groups and educate us about what this journey is like and, and what they need. We turn to them when, when we see, you know, look at our mission, how can we actuate it and what can we actually do to help families live with this disease today because we know that the treatments won't be till tomorrow. Um, so I have to say that that as difficult and frustrating as this disease is, um, I have met the most amazing people in the world um, who somehow rise up and, and, and deal with it. Not that they have a choice, of course, but... Um, they they find some some source of strength and um faith or whatever it might be and um they're able to to rise up and and care for their loved one and the rest of the family all the while having to explain to the outside world every day just what the heck this disease is and and why these things are happening um so we uh, we welcome anybody to find us. We have a toll-free helpline, um, and we're here to help in any way we can. And uh, we wouldn't be able to, to do everything we do without the wonderful, generous support of volunteers and donors. So we invite you to, to join us and help build a stronger a stronger future for all of our families. Well, and don't forget to go to their Facebook page too. The F or the AFTD. Uh, um, you can just put that in, and it should pop right up. And, and give them a like, and, and you know, share that page with your your friends and family and um, and circle. Um, if you're a Twitter user, they're also on Twitter. Again, their handle is the AFTD org. And um, and the helpline number is eight six six five zero seven seven two two two. I thank you all for being with us today. It was a really an interesting conversation. And once again, I learned so much. I I so appreciate uh, people having this conversation. I think it's just critical that we just have these normal everyday conversations and not not feel the stigmas or feel embarrassed um, that we're dealing with these things. There are so many others that are affected, and even though the numbers aren't high in, in comparison to Alzheimer's disease, chances are there's a lot more families struggling with this than are diagnosed, just like there are with other dementias, and they need to hear these conversations. Um, they need to feel your your love and your support and your comfort, and knowing that they're they're not alone. That in in and of itself is is absolutely massive. So thank you all for being with us. Um, really appreciate your time today. Thank you very I, much for you, having Lori. us, Lori. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Appreciate it so much. You as well. Um, I am going to um, go ahead and. Uh, wrap up our closing here. Again, if you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, you can go to Alzheimer's Disease International. For that tau trial, you can go to the Alzheimer's Studies. 
dot uh, dot com, or you can go to the Alzheimer's team on Facebook. And again, don't forget the Louis Body Association, lbda.org, and um, the the uh, Association for the Frontal Temporal Degeneration, uh, AF. TD.org. It's been a pleasure to be with you all. If you haven't checked out our website, please do so. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. From there, you'll be able to access the radio show, our blog, dementia chats, and resources. If you are a business or a service or you've got a book, please feel free to go ahead and add those to our resource directory. All you have to do is to go up to the partnering options, share that you care button, register, and you can go ahead and input your information so others can find you. Until next week, have a blessed blessed day and a blessed week, and we'll talk soon. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.